Hey, we're so happy you found us online. The message you're about to hear was recorded live at Grace Family Church. We're a community following the call to love God, love people, and make a difference. We meet at four locations around Durban and at graceonline.tv. Go ahead and share this message, or you can download it and listen to it in your car or at home later today. Wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening from, thank you for connecting with us. And may you be encouraged by the message coming up next. You may be wondering what these props are about. Um, they will make sense in a bit. Matt's thumb is a direct result of that spear that he made, and there's still some blood on it. But, hello, why don't you turn to someone and say, how's it? Say hello, say, hope you had a good weekend. Give them a high five, a handshake. There we go. All right. Now, I want to try to make this a little interactive, so kind of roll with me here. The title for my message this evening is Stressed Out Soul. Turn to someone and say, you look stressed out, bro. <laughs> joking, not joking. Um, but I want to tell you the story of Saul, King Saul, a character in the Bible many, maybe you're familiar with. Uh, and King Saul, in the beginning, was a hero. I mean, he did incredible things for the kingdom of God, for the people of Israel. And one of the first things he did as a king, he was so kind of open-hearted. He was, he, his first act of king was to forgive his enemies. And so this is, this is what Saul was like. But unfortunately, as time went on, and you can read the story, and we'll read a little bit tonight, but Saul became impatient. He started taking matters into his own hands in a campaign against the Philistines. He refused to listen uh, to the prophet Samuel that God was speaking to him through. And he, and he begins to kind of you know, ignore the promptings of God and the counsel of others. Uh, in one instance, instead of killing all the livestock as God had instructed him to do, uh, he and his men kept the best for themselves. The scripture says they took whatever was pleasing to them. Maybe it was because they, they were afraid if they didn't do that, then they wouldn't have enough for themselves. I'm not sure. But then, of course, there's kind of Saul's increasingly troubled relationship with the young, upcoming David. David from David and Goliath fame. We read in 1 Samuel 18, verse 6, it says, When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals, and this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry, the scriptures say. What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. And so from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul begins to allow jealousy, he begins to allow anxiety and fear to creep into his heart and mind. And eventually it, goes so, it gets so bad, he can't even sleep at night. He has to have David play the harp. I'm not going to play the harp. But David plays the harp he, so that he can go to sleep. I mean, he's self-medicating. And some of you may know, eventually Saul's paranoia kind of gets so bad that he actually plots to have David assassinated. The very one whom God sent to Saul to help Saul. Now, I want to press pause there for a moment and kind of reflect on the year so far, as Paul says. Can you believe that we are already in February 2020? It's kind of scary. And like I said a few weeks ago, while certainly a new year can bring about a sense of hope and expectation that this year can be better than the last, it also, as I've said, can bring about a sense of anxiety, a sense of stress. 
as we look around at the, the stuff going on in our world, as we look at the bills, as, we, as we're reminded of our New Year's resolutions that we've already failed on. Yes, just me. I had like 14 donuts this weekend. Anyway, but as we look at what's going on in our world and the struggles in our lives, it's easy to become stressed out, to become overwhelmed like Saul. We long to be like David. I mean, I long to be like David. I want to be the, the warrior. I want to be the giant slayer. I, I want to be David, but so often I'm Saul. Over the December break, I read a book uh, called Managing Leadership Anxiety. It's a great holiday reading. Um, it's not a great title for the book, but it's a great book. And, and my wife and my staff are getting sick of hearing it. And so I, I kind of uh, have spoken a little bit about this in, in the part one of Dream Small. So if you were there for that, you might remember some of the stuff. But I want to go a little deeper from, from that because this book's kind of it, it said a few things that really struck me. It's written by a guy named Steve Cuss. He's a pastor in the States. And he does a lot of work with, with um, church leaders, business leaders, and particularly around uh, sort of burnout and managing yourself. And um, he, he, he studies systems theory, which is interesting. But, but this is what he says kind of early on in the book, and, and, and that's what I've said before. But he says that burnout is not a result of workload. It's a result of unresolved internal and relational anxiety. And man, when I heard that, it just kind of resonated in my soul because I kind of know it to be true. But because I know, I mean, you can go on as many holidays as you want. You can go on as many sabbaticals as you want. But if you're dealing with some internal stuff in your heart or in your relationships, in your marriage, I'm telling you that stuff will still be there when you get back. Right? Don't say yeah, amen too loud because your wife's sitting next to you. But anyway... Um, <laughs> No amount of physical rest is going to solve these things. And so uh, workload may be a contributing factor, but only in so much as it produces anxiety inside of us. I mean, in the early days of, of ministry for me as a, as a young 20-something, I was so kind of driven and I was running around doing way too much stuff. And I basically kind of reached the point where I was just stretched too thin. And I was, I wouldn't say burnout, but, I, but in that moment, I kind of became angry at the church. And I became angry at the leadership and I became angry at God even. But actually, when I looked inside of myself, it was me. It was unresolved internal stuff that I, I hadn't dealt with. Because underneath my busyness, I was actually striving to try and prove myself. I'm not even sure to who. Because even though I maybe couldn't have articulated at the time, but I grew up feeling like many of us do. I felt like I wasn't enough. And I had a dad who, didn't, who felt like never approved. And fathers in the room, you need to hear this. This is why a dad's voice is so, so powerful. Because I could have a thousand people tell me that they're proud of me. And I would exchange it all to hear those words come from my dad. There's something powerful about a father's voice. And so I sought approval. As a non-Christian at varsity, it was through, you know, ego and partying and all that. But when I became a Christian, what I did was I just kind of transferred that need to prove myself into ministry. Now I had to be the best Christian and the be, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it drove me to the edge. You see, when we get down to the root of our anxiety, not just deal with the symptoms, that's when the real healing begins. And this is, I mean, I mean if, you, if, you, if you're not a, this is not just for Christians. If you're not a Christian here and you're kind of exploring, this is still good advice. This is going to help. Saul was struggling with anxiety, not because he had too much to do, but because he had unresolved internal and relational stuff going on. Are you with me? Now, the other thing I found fascinating about the book is that he says anxiety is not just personal, it's systemic. That a group of people, like a family or a staff or a community, even a whole 
nation can actually develop systemic fear, systemic anxiety. Roberta Gilbert says, all that is necessary to create an emotional system is spending time together. Anxiety is contagious. Saul's anxiety infected an entire nation, in fact, led a nation into needless war. Now, this all sounds like bad news, doesn't it? And it is bad news, but there is good news. Say good news. And the good news is the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Let me explain. Jesus brought about a revolution when he came to earth. I mean, whatever you think about this man that walked the earth, Jesus, what can't be denied is the impact he left on our world and the way that we see it. But one particular revolution that we don't often kind of speak around is is how Jesus forever shifted our perspective on infection. And let me explain that. Before Jesus, if someone was sick or sinful, you were basically considered cursed by the gods. If you were a leper, you had to wear a bell around your neck too so that people could stay away from you because they believed if they came into contact with you, they would be infected with your sickness. And it was the same for religious leaders. They avoided the sinners so their holiness wouldn't be polluted. Christians are still doing that today. But Jesus came along and blew that whole operation up. He touched lepers and disease-ridden people. He associated with sinners and even enjoyed their company. I mean, Jesus rocked up the one time with a prostitute at a party, and he didn't even explain himself. I mean, can you imagine? (laughs) Jesus forever changed the perception of infection and sin transfer. Because when Jesus, the healthy and the holy man, touched the sick, and when he lived in close proximity to sinners, he infected them. Instead of Jesus becoming sick or sinful, people became clean. And this may seem obvious to us now or insignificant, but it's huge. And it gets to the core of the power of the good news, the gospel of Jesus. The writer of Proverbs, and I would argue uh, 1990s youth leaders around the world, say that, tell us that bad company corrupts good character. And that is true. But Jesus brought a more powerful truth. Now, because of Jesus, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He showed us the incredible power of the gospel that health can infect ill health rather than the other way around. And this is the amazing thing about systems theory because not everyone in in the system has to change in order to bring change to the system. Not everyone has to be on board. Let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, Jess and I are stuck in unhealthy patterns of conflict resolution. My wife, hypothetically speaking, (laughs) just imagine how crazy that would be. But, okay, we're stuck in these unhealthy, and and generally what happens with Jess and I, you guys know this, she ramps up, she's the rhino, I'm the hedgehog. She gets fired up in in all the emotion, and I just, you know, curl into a ball, stick my spikes out, Okay. I'm like, I said, I'm like, I'm like Elsa from Frozen. Bro. I can freeze the house out, okay? I can just get all cold. I don't mind the cold. You know, I'm not going to sing, but, you know, cold doesn't bother me anyway. Flick my hair, okay? <laughs> anyway, so this is what happens. Now we get, we get into, in, into a jam. And here's the thing. If I respond, not if she responds, if I respond in a different spirit, if I respond in an opposite spirit, in, if, even if she's ramping up and going crazy, if I respond with warmth, And with kindness, she has to adjust. The system has to adjust. 
That's the beautiful thing. And all the anxiety and all the tension is instantly just kind of, it's dissipated. And let me just say this. The goal of managing stress or anxiety is not just simply relief from anxiety and stress. That's not, not, not the goal. It's actually to connect more fully with God and with others. We say love God, love people. And here's the reality I certainly know for me. When I'm anxiety, when I'm stressed out, I can't connect with other people. If I'm so busy worried about what they're going to think about me and how am I sounding and what, you know, then I, I, I'm, I'm unable to see the person in front of me and I'm unable to ask the question, what might God be doing here? Because I'm so preoccupied with my own anxiety. But the good news in that is that as followers of Christ, for those of us in the room who call ourselves Christians, we can kind of, because of that, we can reframe anxiety. As, a, as an early warning sign, I love what Steve Cuss says in the book. He says, anxiety is just an early detection system that we're depending on something other than God for our well-being. Wow. That we're depending on something other than God. And so, like I said, check your dashboard in week one of Dream Small. And what that means is if you're driving a car and there's a light flashing, what are you going to do? You're going to pull over the car and figure out what's going on. And so next time you start to feel stress, you start to feel anxiety building up, Ask yourself, what's underneath that? What's going on? Take a step back. It's an early warning sign that we're trusting in something other than God. The thing that we think we need in the moment, and if we don't get it, we become anxious. And that anxiety blocks our capacity to encounter the grace of God in that moment. So the example, I'm stressed out about money in 2020. Prices are going up. Economy's going down. Things are tight. There's not going to be enough. Well, actually underneath that is a much deeper fear that I'm not going to have enough. That, and underneath that is an even deeper one that maybe God will not provide all that I need. Right? And that's hard to see in the mirror, but it's there. So what do we do? We ramp up. We take matters into our own hands and we check our budget, you know, a hundred more times and we figure it out and we, you know, do some stuff and we... And we stress and we get irritated. Like I said, I get irritated with my wife when, when she goes, when she buys an extra slab of chocolate in our grocery bill. And I'm not going through it. She does that. <laughs> she buys extra slabs of chocolate and biltong. And I'll tell you what she does. This is the, the worst part. She hides it. No joke. She's watching, if you're watching online, babe, love you. I know you're where your secret stash is, okay? I like getting socks out the bottom drawer, and there's a flipping, you know, top deck. Because she, she knows if I find it, it's gone. Anyway, but you know what? My stress and anxiety, it's got nothing to do with the chocolate and everything to do with what's going on in my heart. And so often we take it out there because we haven't learned to deep down trust in God. Is this kind of, is this, is this true? Does anyone else struggle with this? Okay, good. I thought it was just me there for a moment. But but if this, if this is you, don't be too hard on yourself because this is totally normal and it's what theologians call your false self. Thomas Merton called it that a, a number of years ago and, 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 and Richard Raw more recently calls it your immature ego. And what I love about this idea, he says, your immature ego is, is more bogus than bad. In other words, it's not so much a sinful thing. It's, it's really, it's just kind of bogus. It's not true. It's a liar. It tells me that I can stop beating myself up about my immature ego and just simply get on with the work of, of allowing God to help my ego grow up a little bit so that I can begin to live into a bigger and a wider story. 
Anxiety shrinks the power of the gospel because it presents a false gospel, one of self-reliance and not reliance on God. And let me say this, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, the gospel of self-reliance is always bad news because it always leads to more anxiety. But if we can learn to notice it and name it and move past it, then we encounter the actual good news of Jesus, the gospel of grace, which always leads to freedom. Always. This is the unfair advantage of those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ because the world has self-help books. And self-help books are great. And we've got self-help books too, but we've also got the power of the Holy Spirit empowering us to make those changes and to surrender to God. See how immature egos are part of us that still want to worship idols. And that word idols has kind of become this big religious term, but it's not that. An idol is anything we think we need other than God. In the old days, it was, a, it was something that people would make out of gold or statue or, what, or bronze or whatever. But nowadays, it's more kind of a heart desire, an impulse that we think we need something in order to be okay. Maybe it's status, security, uh, whatever it is. And let me just say this. We all have idols in our lives. Not little golden calves, but idols of recognition, of approval, whatever. And the call of the Christ follower is to simply die to that untrue self, to that false self, to bring it into the light, to expose it for what it is, false, immature, and then allow God to do what only he can do, and that's to mature our immature egos. And there's something so powerful about this. When we can say, hey God, you know what? I'm stressed about this. This is weighing heavy on me. I'm stressed about money. I'm anxious that we still haven't fallen pregnant yet. I'm anxious about this new job. And we just bring it before God. And here's what I find when we do that. We say, hey God, you know what? It's because actually I'm, I'm actually struggling to trust you with, with finance. I'm actually struggling to trust you with this thing because it felt like you never came through last time. But when we can actually just bring that to God and lay it before Him, then somehow, maybe the situation doesn't change, but somehow the power of that thing loses its grip on us. This is what I think Paul is writing when he writes in Romans 6. He says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to those things, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with Him. But we have to die before we can live. But here's the promise. Here's the promise. I counted this week. I counted at least 26 times in the New Testament where freedom and life, say freedom and life, are the promises, promised outcomes when we deny and crucify our false selves. And let me just say this, and then I'm going to move on, but this is really important. For too long, the church has got this wrong, guys. For too long. When Paul speaks about sin in Romans, he's almost always talking about a noun, not a verb. Okay, there's two words that he uses uh, for sin in, in the Greek. The noun, harmatia, and the verb, harmatano. Paul uses the noun 46 times and the verb twice. Paul describes sin as a condition you are in, less about something that you do. Paul saying that we're being set free from sin is more about, uh, is about being infected and then healed rather than doing wrong things. So why then do I still sin? Why then do I still struggle? Well, 
Paul explains that it all comes down to where we put our energy and our time. He's implying that sin or fear gains power or control over us when we engage in it. But so does God. And so it all comes down to where we give our energy and our time. In other words, where we put our attention defines our spiritual growth. If we make a habit of offering ourselves to fear and to anxiety, then that thing becomes master over us. It gains power and control over our lives. But if we habitually and humbly offer ourselves to God, His power takes over and frees us from anxiety's grip. I think for too many years we've mistakenly taught that God kills and God gives life, but I don't think that's what Paul taught. Paul wasn't saying that God punishes us when we sin. Paul was saying that sin punishes us when we sin. That the reason to not live in sin isn't so much about disappointing God or angering God. God is not angry. It's the reason to avoid sin at all costs is to avoid sin's price, which is always death. And that can be a literal death, but most often it kills the things we love. A relationship, our integrity, our capacity to look at someone in the eyes. Sin is on the prowl looking to destroy, but God is in the life-giving business. Now, one final remark, and then we're going to move on. As you seek to attempt to mature your egos, please be kind and gentle with yourself. I mean, this is... The process is a lifelong journey, so you don't have to be a jerk about it. And I'm, but I'm absolutely convinced that every single one of us in this room has the capacity to bravely die to our weaknesses and discover life on the other side of our assumptions and our fears and our anxieties. And that really is my heart for every single one in this room and watching online. Amen? Okay, so... I know that's a lot. I kind of bombarded you with a whole bunch of information. And if you, don't, if you don't pick up all of it, that's fine. But maybe there's just one or two points that God has kind of drawn up to you or brought up to your heart and mind. I just want you to kind of sit on that thing. And then I'm going to turn now to, well, how do we actually do this? Because that's the question, right? Well, and this sounds great, but how? How do I overcome my false self? Well, I want to turn back to the story of Saul. And with the rest of our time together, look at one particular incident that took place between Saul and David that I think can give us some clues in how we manage our own anxiety and trust in, in God in the midst of whatever it is that's going on in our world. And so I heard this message from a church in the States that kind of, I never really saw this interaction in this light before, but I want to read to you from 1 Samuel 19, verse 9 to 10. Uh, it says this, But then a black mood from God settled over Saul, and took control of him. Ever had a black mood? <laughs> I feel like I have a black mood every Monday. I give everything on Sunday. I don't know, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian on Monday. Um, you ever had a kind of, kind of had that mood? Well, this is Saul, and he's in the midst of this struggling with this jealousy with David. It says he was sitting at home, his spear in his hand, while David was playing music. Suddenly Saul tried to skewer David with a spear, but David ducked. The spear stuck in the wall, and David got away. Now, it may feel like kind of a small incident, only a few lines in the story, but I think this has significant relevance for you and I this evening in terms of how we manage and deal with the stress that is inevitable in our world and in our lives. So let's first look at Saul. First of all, it's easy to think that, Saul, that God abandoned Saul. 
And while the scriptures do say that God removed his favor from Saul, that doesn't mean that God stopped loving Saul. He never stopped loving Saul. He never stops loving us. And I, want to, I felt like God kind of reminded me to tell someone here this evening, maybe you feel like God has abandoned you or taken his favor off of you. And I'm here to remind you, God still loves you. And God has a plan for your life. The problem with Saul was that he was so consumed by his anxiety, he couldn't recognize what God was doing. That God was actually trying to help Saul by bringing David into his life. But when I'm so busy fighting within myself and fighting against the very thing that God is trying to use in my life and slinging spears at the very thing. And I thought about that. I thought about the story and I thought, how many times in my own life have I tried to kill the very thing that God is trying to use in my life? That season that I'm going through, we just try to rush through it when God is doing such deep work. So Saul hurls the spear. And David has a choice. Let me just say, this spear is deadly, okay? Um, I bought a really nice, cool Zulu spear down the south, co south coast I was going to bring to the service, and I forgot it. And so Matt, like five minutes before the service, put this thing together. I think it's awesome. It's deadly. Stand back, okay? I mean, this thing is serrated. It's got blood on it. It's got glue. It hasn't even dried yet. It's just awesome, okay? The harp is, uh, is from a lady in our church who actually plays the harp. I'm, I'm not going to try and attempt to even touch that thing because I'm scared of it. Okay. But Saul hurls the spear. David has a choice, and so do each of us. Saul, in his attempt to spear David, to skewer David, he, he hits the wall behind David. David ducks. Saul has his hand on the spear. David has his hand on the harp. You with me? The message version I read to you now doesn't say he had his hand on the harp. Most versions say something about a harp or he had his hand on the lyre. It's a string instrument. And I was thinking about these two things. And I was thinking, if this was a game of, you know, ching chong cha, rock, paper, scissors, which one would you rather have? The string or the spear? I'm going to go with the spear, okay? I feel like that's the one. And so when Saul misses, David has a decision because the spear is stuck in the wall. And so here's the decision he has to make. Do I take my hand off the harp and pick up the spear and throw it back? Because one thing we know about David, David doesn't miss. Okay? Ask Goliath about David's aim. Okay? So David, I mean, you, if you throw a spear at David and you miss, you better hope he doesn't throw it back because it ain't going to stick in the wall behind you. Okay? It's going to get you. But David does what must have been incredibly hard for him to do. Nothing. He does nothing. Imagine what that must have been like when you have a reputation for taking out giants and someone's thrown a spear at you and now you, you don't say anything back. Someone's posted the comment on your Facebook. I get some hate mail. <laughs> Tom.basan at grace.org.za. You're welcome to send the mail there. I get some of it, and, and to be honest, I've learned over the years to kind of just, you know, wait a few days before I reply, calm down, you know, or, you know, discuss it with my team. How, is there truth in this, what they're saying, whatever? But I've written some replies, guys, that I haven't sent that are poetic, okay? <laughs> I'm telling you, they are biblical, right? Like, maybe not the language, but the, the imagery, okay? <laughs> Saul had his hand on the spear, and David had his hand on the harp, and he never picks up the spear. And here's my takeaway, just one takeaway from the story. When it comes to dealing with stress or anxiety, whatever it is, I don't know what you're going through, but God does. 
that thing that lies before you, that mountain before you, when it comes to dying to our false selves, here's the, the one take. If you get nothing else, get this. Keep your hand on the harp. Keep your hand on the harp. And I know that's a metaphor. And you say, well, what does that mean, Tom? Well, it means different things to different people. For me, the spear represents this desire that we all have inside of us to kind of take matters into our own hands, right? To, to, to do it on our own. And that's a, that's a self-reliance path that will always lead to death. While the harp represents our capacity to trust. To trust. <laughs> to let go of our false selves. To let go of the idols, these things that we think we need other than God. Keeping your hand on the harp, for some of you, it may mean letting go of your past. It may mean letting go of what they said about you or the lie you've believed about yourself for too long. For others, it may be around meditation and prayer, learning to fix our eyes on God while the spears are flying overhead. Perhaps it's simply slowing down long enough to notice what is going on inside of us. Perhaps for some, it means pursuing faith. Maybe you're here and you're skeptical about the whole Jesus church thing. Well, go do the Alpha course. It's a safe place. We had over 500 people at our campuses and 180 meeting in, uh, in Westville Prison going through the Alpha Course all started on Wednesday. And most of those people, they're not Christians. They, they're kind of there to explore what faith is about, ask the big questions. Maybe that's the next step for you. Maybe it's uh, coming on the uh, unengaged and kind of getting connected. You've been coming for a while, but you haven't really got stuck in. For others, it may mean seeking wise counsel. Or perhaps it's worship. I love this. Saul had a weapon. David just had an instrument. But maybe, oh, your worship people are going to love this. Maybe worship is a weapon. Woo, you all the worship people. Yes. Why don't we sing more songs on Sunday? <laughs> Jess, my wife, spoke about spiritual pathways a few weeks ago and how some of us have a, have a natural inclination to singing. And, you know, we love it when the song goes on and on and on. And I don't have that pathway. I'm saying, when is this going to end? When is this going to end? I want to get scared to the preach, you know. But if, you, if, you, if, if, your wor if worship is a pathway, and even if it's not, lean into it. Use worship as a weapon. Keep your hand on the harp. When you're feeling stressed out and overwhelmed, not enough, worn out, put a song on in your car and just belt it out. Just keep your eyes open, that's all. <laughs> David knew if I keep my hand on the harp, if I let God fight my battles, I cannot be defeated. Because David knew this truth. That while Saul had his hand on the spear and David had his hand on the harp, there was another hand at play in the story. And that is the hand of God. The hand of God in your life and my life. David knew. He knew the same hand that had plucked him from the field. The same hand that had delivered him from the lion and the bear and Goliath. The hand of God is on my life, says David. And Saul cannot kill what God has already crowned. And this is the power of the gospel. I know it's a cheesy Christian line, but it's true. We no longer fight for victory. We fight from victory. That's what Jesus did. He changed the system. He is the system changer, the change agent. We are the recipients. And because of that power, anxiety and fear has lost its grip on us. And I no longer have to long for the voice that says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased because I have a heavenly father and I know who I am. I don't have to prove myself in other situations. I don't have to reply and get them back and throw the spear back. 
You see, it's the internal stuff. That's where the war. And David knew if I can win the battle within my soul, God will fight my battle with Saul. That's where the real battle is. It's within me. It's an internal thing. In my head, in the stories I tell myself about others, in the dots that I connect that aren't true, the lies I believe. But when we keep our hands on the harp, keep trusting in Him, keep believing what He said about me, what He said about us, that I'm made in His image, created with infinite worth and value, with a purpose and plan for my life. That's where we find peace, a deep peace. And you can have all the spears in the world flying overhead, and you just keep your hand on the harp. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen? I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to wrap this service up. Maybe a little bit differently if you're new to grace. Uh, we're going to end by taking communion and singing together. And, and if you need to go, that's fine. And, but, but I really encourage you to kind of lean into this moment as we close the service. And there are communion uh, uh, tables set up all around the room. There's little tiny tables with the lights. There's a table behind the sound desk. You can make your way there in your own time. Grab the emblems, the juice representing Christ's blood shed for us. The crackers representing His body broken for us. And, and, and I really want to say this. I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you hear and you think, you know what, Tom, I'm actually in a good place. I don't have any spears flying at me, and that's cool. That's awesome. Let's celebrate. Let's give thanks to God. But I do know some of you here, and I know some of your stories. And I know that right now you're dealing with some stuff, and you've got spears flying over your head, just like David. I'm just saying, whatever is coming your way, keep your hand on the harp. Don't be like Saul, hand on the spear. Don't try to take matters into your own hand. Trust in him. And as you make your way to the table, let this be a moment for you to, to trust in God. In the midst of whatever it is going on. I mean, this is, this is the picture of, of what Christ was willing to do for us. And I want to invite everyone to the table. Everyone is invited. We say on our wall at our church, all of our campuses, come as you are. And we mean it. No T's and C's apply. No check boxes on the welcome mat. Everyone is invited and called to receive what Christ wants to offer. And that is, He wants to offer all of Himself to us. And you might say, well, I'm not David. But just before we take communion, I want you to know this. Do you know what David's name means? It means beloved. And I want to remind you, you are beloved. You are loved. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect, but we are perfectly loved. That is the gospel. And perfect love casts out fear. The scriptures say we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. So let's make the choice not to pick up the spear, but to keep our hands on the harp. So when you're ready, you can make your way to one of the communion tables, grab the emblems, and you can take them back to your seat, and we're going to take communion together when you're ready.
And so, on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room and shared a meal. And at that meal, he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat. When the supper was ended, again Jesus gave thanks to God and he took a cup of wine and said to his disciples, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. It will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink in remembrance of me. Won't you stand and we're going to pray. Father, we thank you that you changed the system. You brought a revolution that transforms us from the inside out, not by effort, not by works, but because of what you've already done. And we grab hold of that. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection and the life. I'll end with this, Psalm 59, which David wrote, by the way. David wrote while he was being pursued by his enemies, and he says this, You are my strength. I watch for you, you God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. And then I love verse 11. He says this, But do not kill them, the enemies. Lord, our shield. Lord, our shield. You see, David did have a weapon, guys. He had a weapon because when Saul's spears started flying, David got behind his shield. <laughs> so if you have some spears flying at you, I just lift up every spear in this place, every challenge, every obstacle, every marital breakdown, relationship breakdown, untruth we believe, habits we can't shake, idols we're trusting in. Lord, help us to keep our hands on the harp and to stay behind our shield. It is the shield of faith that quenches the fiery darts of the enemy. And even though we may be shepherd boys, we have the winning hand and you are our shield. So let's sing together. Let's worship before we go. Let's lean into this moment.